people, please turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Pastor Joe is away for the weekend and he asked me to fill in for you. And I've been studying 1 Corinthians. It's an amazing book. But in this book, we see Paul's parental care for the church. Paul was speaking as a parent to the believers. Uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians is written by Paul. And it was written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But Paul, I want to give you a little background on Paul. Paul was formerly named Saul of Tarsus. And he was an evil man. He was a very religious man, but he was an evil man. You know, the Bible or commentators describe Paul as a ravenous wolf who just wanted to devour the church. You know, he was always on the hunt for Christians. He passionately tried to destroy this church. And when Paul heard the gospel message, he rejected it. You know, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7, verses uh, 54, that when they heard Paul, uh, the, the preaching of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and chapter 6, when they heard the preaching of Stephen, they were so upset. It said they gnashed at him with their teeth and their, they were cut to the heart. So the gospel is very important. But Stephen, when, when they were stoning Stephen, the Bible says that they laid the clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. And so historically, we know the Bible calls what is called the great persecution of the church. And it was headed by Saul. Saul, what he would do is he would go into houses and he would grab women and men out of their houses and he would throw them into prison, you know, hoping to kill them. And that's who this Saul of Tarsus was. He was a, a very evil man. And the crimes that these people committed was they were Christians. They were Christians. That was their crime. They were Christians. But you know what? It's amazing that God changed his heart. He heard the gospel message. He rejected it at first, but it always stayed with him, and it impressed upon his heart. It never left him. You know, the, the, the impact that Stephen, one man, he was an usher. He was a helper in the church, had an impact on the greatest uh, Bible teacher of all time. But it started with one man and one message. And that message, the, the leaders in, the, in Jerusalem didn't like it. And Stephen is a great model for us to learn from. You know, ordinary man, but he had some characteristics, three characteristics that really stood out about why God used this man to affect Paul so much. This evil man who would go into churches or, or go into people's houses and throw men and women into prison. What would change his heart? The preaching of Stephen had an impact on his life. Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, you can read about it later, Acts chapter 6, verses, verses 3 through 4, it says that Stephen was a faithful man. He faithfully served God and he was cleaning tables. 
That was, he was in the cleaning table ministry. That's what he did for the Lord. And he distributed food. And he was faithful, assisting God's people, helping God's people. You could see him like an usher nowadays, you know, getting things ready for you to sit and to, to hear the word of God. But he was a faithful, assisting God's people, and he helped the church leaders in his, in his day. We see that in Acts chapter 6. But he had a good reputation, the Bible says. He was mature spiritually. How do I know this? Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, we see the preaching of Stephen as Paul was a witness, an unbelieving witness at that time. And Stephen was a student of Scripture. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the gospel. And that is what every Christian should know. Every one of us should know the Word of God and be able to know and to share the gospel. He was a good student. And you see, when we're a student of Scripture and the Holy Spirit should be our main teacher Man, God will do amazing things in the life of God's people. In Acts chapter 9, we see a transformation in Paul. He had an experience. The one one man who tried to destroy the church now supernaturally was changed inwardly. He became part of the spiritual family. They called him brother. So Saul was transformed inwardly and became one of the leaders of the church. The man who tried to destroy the church is now one of the leaders of the church. But, we, but that happened through life change. What changed Paul? What changed Stephen? What, you, what did God use for, to use Stephen? The gospel, the word of God. What changed Paul? The gospel. He heard the gospel, and the word of God transformed him supernaturally. And it could do the same thing with you. Three things. The gospel, gospel message. Number two, the word of God ministering to him personally. And number three, yielding to the Holy Spirit. And that's the same thing with us Christians as, the, as a church, as a people. You guys are the church. The gospel message. Number two, the word of God ministering to you daily and transforming you as you yield to him. Number three, personally through the application of God's word that's what you need it's really simple and that changed Paul as you read the letters that Paul wrote to the church you will notice his parental love and concern for the people he once tried to destroy man it's amazing what God did and you know what he's the same God today he'll still do a great work the reason for Paul's writing this letter is Paul was concerned about the church The church was going off course, and the church was headed for disaster. And you know what? Nothing's changed. Sometimes the church is off course, and the church can be headed for disaster. Who's the church? You're the church, not the building, not not us as a community. You're the church. We could be headed for disaster. So it's good to take these uh, lessons and take an inward look. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 as Paul, here in this, in this uh, first letter, writes to a group of believers. He, Paul said, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with food, solid food, 
for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. So here Paul makes some hard distinctions. You know, he breaks it down in three different levels. Spiritual people, carnal people, and babes in Christ. Speaking of spiritual infancy. The first thing, spiritual people. To take a good look at what it is to be a spiritually mature Christian, go to Acts chapter 6 and, and we take a good look at, at Stephen. He was a mature Christian. He was faithful. He served God. He had a good reputation. He knew the Bible. He knew the gospel. And you know what? God used him. That is a mark of a mature Christian. Also, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 is our memory verse of the week. It's some good practical things to get you mature in Christ, to be a spiritually mature Christian. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says, speaking of the church, and they continued steadfastly, and that word is they were devoted. They were devoted to what? The word of God, the apostles' doctrine. They were devoted in fellowship. They attended service and breaking of bread and prayer. These things were consistent in their life, and these things will cause the Christians to grow in spiritual maturity. So, one thing about spiritually uh, or spiritual mature people, I want to say, one thing about spiritually mature people they're not perfect. They're not perfect. They will make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. As leaders, we will make mistakes. As leaders, we see even the Bible, they made mistakes. We're in good standing. The difference between spirit, the spiritual leaders, what, what, the difference between spirit, the spiritual and the carnal people here in the text is spiritual people are not perfect, but they're governed, their lives are governed, directed, managed, and regulated by God and His Word. In other words, I living by God's standards. I live by God's standards. He sets the standards. And, sometimes, and they're high. And I can't do them on my own. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit for me to live in such a way. Do we fail? Absolutely. We're not perfect. But we're growing in maturity and we're directed by God, His Word, and we're living according to His Word. The Holy Spirit assists us in our walk. Number two, carnal people, however. Carnal people are governed by fleshly appetites. They're directed, they're managed, they're regulated by worldliness. Whatever feels good. And we see this, it, it, it's not only happening in our society, it happened in the days of the judges. If you read the judges, it says, they did what, what, whatever was right in their own eyes. And we're, we're there today. Man, it's almost like anything goes, I, you know, I, I can't even think about what's next. What are we going to see next? What depravity is going to happen next? You know, what they're teaching our children in the next generation. But whatever feels good, People are living, carnal people live by their own standard, what's socially acceptable, and they're conditioned by media, social media, and the world. And this conditioning 
of carnality will slowly creep in. And you will start giving yourself over to fleshly appetites. And it will bring you down. How do I know? Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12 through 14 gives us a good indication of what will happen to a believer in a carnal state. Because some believe that there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. I, I, I beg to differ. I deal with my flesh all the time. We're called to crucify the flesh and its passions. Why? Because it'll get the best of us. Number one, carnality will make the Christian dull of hearing spiritually. This is from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12. I, I got six principles. It'll do, carnality in your life will make the Christian dull spiritually of hearing. You could be sitting, you could be called a so-called Christian, be sitting in the church, and you're there, but you're tuned out. Something, your carnality has messed with your, your equilibrium where you're not really hearing the message of God because it isn't taking effect in your life. Number two, carnality will make you spiritually anemic. You will have a lack of spiritual appetite. Therefore, you will not have the spiritual nutrition you need to cause you to grow. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4. You know, Jesus, when he was tempted in the desert, what did he use? The word of God. Three times as the devil came to tempt him. He, in the first, in, in Matthew 4, 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how important the word of God is to a spirit-filled person, a Christian. We need to be in the word. Why? It's like milk and solid food. It causes us to grow. And carnality, you will have a lack of an appetite for the word. Am I in the word or not? Am I lacking an appetite for being in the Bible? Could be my carna the carna carnal, carnal side of me is, is the dominant side. I'm not being fed. Number three, carnality will hinder you from being where you're supposed to be in your spiritual walk. You should be somewhere doing something for the Lord and you're not there. How do I know this? Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, By now you should be teachers. You should be doing this. But you're lacking because of carnality. It'll keep you from being where God wants you to be in your spiritual walk. Number four, carnality will weaken your senses to rightly discern both good and evil. Carnality will weaken your senses where the believer will not rightly discern good or evil. It will blind you of your own true spiritual condition. How do I know? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, he was speaking to the church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. They thought they were rich and wealthy and need of nothing. They thought they were, were good. But Jesus said, don't you know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Sometimes we could have a view of ourselves that we're on par spiritually. I'm good. I'm good. But how does Jesus see us? He sees this church here spiritually impoverished, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He sees us in truth. 
carnality. Number five, carnality will make the Christian compromise in areas of, of judgment and sexual immorality. It'll cause you to do perverted things and accept sexually perverted things. It'll also cause you to allow spiritual idolatry into your life. Anything goes, spirituality, paganism, all kinds of uh, uh, compromise. You know, I think of Solomon, one of the wisest men that ever walked in the face of the earth. He wrote us the, the Proverbs. You know, God warned him in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 2, God warned him not to multiply wives. Don't give in to your appetite, your carnal appetites. Why? Because your carnal appetites will draw you away from God. You know, I don't know what your appetites are. I know what mine are. And I need to keep them under control. And here in the Bible, we have a great lesson that God warned Solomon about his carnal appetites. They will turn him away to other gods. You see, his compromise with immoral people doing immoral things. It says, Solomon clung to these in love. You know, we need to pray, God help us not to give in to our carnal appetites because we all have them. We all have them. We all have something that tempts us. And then unless we crucify the flesh and give ourselves over to the Lord, It'll take over. Number six, carnality will cause division among brethren. It'll cause division in the church and even in the home. There are six things God hates in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, and division is one of them. And even in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 14, it says that carnality will cause you to have an evil heart. Carnality will cause you to have an evil heart. And th- having that evil heart, you will begin to plot evil things. I'm going to plot out evil things. How do I know? I've been there. I've been here. The Lord's speaking to me here in this message. Carnality will bring us down. It'll cause us to do, think evil and plot evil. But next, Paul goes to babes in Christ, spiritual infants. Not growing, being in the church for years and years in a lack of spiritual nutrition, there's no growth. There's no spiritual growth in our life. And and that stems from not being in the Word, not being in prayer, not being consistent in, in, in the Word of God and prayer and fellowship makes you spiritually not grow. And what was happening in this, this section in the text, you have these believers who were carnal, they were spiritual, but they became spiritual snobs. Spiritual snobs. And then you have the infants, and so we have a big problem here in the church in this section because when pride and immaturity clashes, we have big problems in the church. And Paul gives evidence to this in verse 3, the evidence of carnality. He said, 
For wherever envy and strife and divisions are among you, are you not behaving like mere men? You see, the Word of God shows us clearly that our actions and even our attitudes show that we are not behaving like spiritually mature Christians. We're carnal. We're acting like babes. And here is a strong indictment that our actions show carnality. We're behaving like mere men. What, what he's saying is we're acting just like the world. There's no difference. Why? Carnality and infancy. I have to take an inward look. Am I carnal? Am I growing? But you see, Paul in his parental love and his concern for God and his people, he has a parental concern. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14, the reason why he was addressing the church in this manner. He said, I do not write these things to shame you, but as, a, but as my beloved children to warn you. See, Paul wasn't trying to shame the church. He was warning them as a loving, caring parent. He loves them. Man, just think, this man who wanted to destroy the church, he's now weeping and crying and agonizing and praying and, 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 and pleading with the church. Why? Because he's concerned of their spiritual condition. We have to ask ourselves, what's my condition this morning? Where am I at with the Lord? You see, Paul in his parental concern noticed that the church was being more influenced by the world than the word. And in verse 4 through 8, Paul says, For when one says, I am of, of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believe. As the Lord gave each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So one of the number one problems because of carnality and influence and, and infancy in the church was a misguided uh, perspective. When we're a carnal or we are infants in the church, we will have a mis, uh, misguided perception of how church should be. We see this a lot. They were misguided. They were, their focus became prideful they were boasting about their pastors that was the main emphasis of the church you know i'm of paul i'm of apollos i'm of peter i'm of paul apollos was a great orator you know it could be the same thing in our modern day i'm of joe i'm of i'm of raw i'm of jack you know we're boasting on the pastor the emphasis was the pastor it's not shouldn't be the pastor, it's the word of God. It became, church became kind of a spiritual pride. 
becoming more about the ministers rather than focusing on knowing God, worshiping God, and living to glorify God. That's what we're called to do. But here Paul was saying, me and Apollos, we're just ministers through whom you believed. We're just ministers, we're instruments. We're instruments to, through whom you believe. And you see, pastors do have a heavy responsibility. God will hold us accountable on the day of judgment for what we teach. The motive of reason why we teach. James chapter 3 and verse 1 says, My brethren, speaking to the church, I let not, not oh, sorry, excuse me. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing you will receive a stricter judgment. God will hold teachers accountable, pastors accountable. But the emphasis is not on charisma or the lack of the pastor-teacher's charisma. They're responsible for what they teach. But each one is responsible, each one, each church member is responsible for the application of the teaching. You're responsible for the application of the teaching. And here Paul speaks of planning. He's planting. That was, he was called to plant. Planting what? He's planting seeds. He's planting seeds, seeds of the gospel. You see, it is our responsibility as teachers to teach you the word of God, to teach you the gospel, to shepherd you, to guide you in the word. But it is your personal responsibility, church, not Calvary Chapel Cornerstone, you, the church. It's your personal responsibility of adhering and doing what Jesus said in the Great Commission. We're called to know, number one, know the gospel. Know the gospel. Number two, to understand the gospel. And number three, to be able to share the gospel. If we as pastors fail to equip you, woe is us. If we're not sharing the gospel and equipping you to share the gospel, we failed as pastors. So we failed as pastors. You know, me and uh, Brother Adrian used to go out to uh, Citrus College every Thursday. They have a freedom court, and we used to preach the gospel. Um, and during that, that time, as, as in you know, all the times I do in ministry, I do a lot of funerals. And one of the things, Adrian used to go with me on, on funerals, and, and when I share in, with a funeral, I share the gospel. Why? It's man's greatest needs. 150,000 people die every 24 hours. That's 54 million a year pre-COVID. People die, not because of COVID, because of, of, of sin. We're sinners. We're going to stand before the day, on that day, before God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says. And as we were, as I preached the gospel, I try to make it easy for me to remember to stay on track because I want to be able to share the gospel. I want to be able to understand the gospel. And if I'm able to under, know the gospel, understand the gospel, I'm, it's, e I'm, it's easier for me to share the gospel. And the Bible says that that's man's greatest need. The gospel means the good news. But there's bad news. The bad news is we're all going to die. We're all going to stand before God on the day of judgment. Bad news. 
I'm standing on my own righteousness. So as we were going out to the colleges, and at that time I was doing a lot of funerals, you know, we would come up in ways of, of how to make it easy for us to, to explain the gospel, keep us on track. Because I used to use a certain uh, system just to keep me on track. And, you know, going through this, uh, Adrian came up with this re- really easy acronym, SUSTAIN, S-U-S-T-A-I-N, SUSTAIN. And we use those letters as an acronym to keep us on track to help us to share the gospel. And I could share the gospel quickly. You know, there were times where I would go out and share and they were like, well, I don't want to hear it. And I say, I'll say, well, give me, one, give me 30 seconds and I'll share with you. And I was able to share the gospel in 30 seconds. And I pray that you will be equipped to do so as well. So the acronym I'm going to share with you uh, from SUSTAIN is S, SINNERS. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. And sin simply means missing the mark. Missing the mark of what? Moral perfection. You know, I have this uh, little thing here. I, uh, Larry and Susie made that for me. But it is a, a, a little game that I used to play. I used to take it out in the street, and I used to put it up, and I used to get these little balls, and I used to throw it, and they used to stick. It's called missing the mark. It was, I used to call it missing the mark game. If you, get the, if you hit it in, in the center, I'll give you a $5 gift card for Starbucks. And, and people would come, and, and then I would explain what it is. And it's the law. We all miss the mark of moral standard. You know, in it, I, I have the colors, the gray areas. People don't think lying is, is wrong. Or, so I'd have lying and covetousness here. Red sins would be like uh, murder and lust, uh, green sins, uh, honor your father and your mother. And then, you know, this is the, t- it was the Ten Commandments. So I would use it, and so we came up with this thing together, me and Adrian, how easy to share the gospel. So they would, they would have a curiosity, they would want to come and know what was going on. So they would play the game, and I'd give them a gift card, but I would get to share the gospel. But I would use this acronym to help me stay on track, and it was quick. So S, sinners, means missing the mark of moral perfection. You see, we all miss the mark. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, we all all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of God. Pastors, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, we all fall short. We've all sinned. We've all blown it. And we all will blow it. Okay, none of us walk on water. You, undeserving undeserving you know works are good but your works and your moral goodness will not reward you entrance into heaven to think so is to be an insult to what jesus did on the cross in matthew chapter 19 verse 25 through 26 to the disciples the disciples when jesus spoke he said they said well then who can be saved the inference jesus was saying was By man, nobody. You can't save yourself. There's no way possible. And Jesus said, as he looked at them, he said, with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. Why? Because we are undeserving. We're not as good as we think. Our own moral goodness compared to Jesus, we miss the mark. He's perfect, we're not. We're undeserving of heaven. So the next S, 
Savior. We all know John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the verse right before that says, we were condemned. We're already condemned. We're already on death row. Jesus came to save us, to be our Savior. Why? You know, everyone knows John 3, 16, but what about John 3, 36? It says those who don't believe have the wrath of God abiding on them. In other words, they're going to pay the full price of their sins once they close their eyes and go into eternity. The full wrath and punishment of all eternity in hell. And Jesus came to save us. That's the bad news. The bad news is we're all sinners, we're undeserving, but thank God for the Savior. S, Savior. Who came and was T, tortured. He was tortured on our behalf. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4 through, uh, 3 through 4 says, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I've also received, that the Lord Jesus Christ, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You see, he didn't have to die, but he died for your sins. He died for my sins. So Christian, don't take sin lightly. Don't take carnality lightly. He died to save us from sin. A, he made atonement. Atonement. He paid the price. Remember when he was on the cross, and the, one of the last things he said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. That is a, a legal term for, or accounting term for paid in full. Jesus paid in full the punishment that you deserve and I deserve for our sin. He did this so that we could, A, attain access to heaven. We could go to heaven, not because of our own righteousness, but because of His righteousness. What happened is a legal transaction. He atoned for our sin. He put to our account His righteousness. You know, you think of Jesus, good. He did everything perfect. The law, He completed perfectly. He never sinned. Everything He did was pleasing to the Father. So His righteousness his perfect life is put to my account when I recognize I'm a sinner, undeserving. I accept him as my Savior. He was tortured on the cross on my behalf. What happens, he atoned for my sin, and he, his, his perfect righteousness is put to my account because I believe in him. And we're made perfect, John chapter 17, as Jesus prayed that we would be perfect in one with him and the Father. And that comes through the righteousness that we get from Christ. Romans chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes that David foresaw the cross and described the happiness of those believers who would be declared righteous without works because Christ was imputing his righteousness to our account. So when we die, we stand before God on the day of judgment. He sees Christ's righteousness, not my good works, because my good works are as filthy rags filthy rags according to isaiah chapter 64 6 i believe 
So Christ's righteousness is deposited to my account when I repent and I put my faith and trust in him. In Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 20, Jesus even told the, Pharisees, he told the disciples, unless your, your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to heaven. Your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And these guys, ceremonially, they were righteous. But inwardly, Jesus said, they're full of dead men's bones. Why? Because they, they rejected the Savior. They thought they could go to heaven by their own moral goodness. But the scriptures teach us, like Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, what does the scripture say? That Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was imputed righteousness. Because he believed in, in, the God, in, in God. The Old Testament saints believed in the coming of the Messiah. We look back to Jesus came and died for our sins. They were looking forward and we're looking backwards. That's the only difference. James chapter 3 and verse 20, I'm sorry, James chapter 2 verse 23 says that the scriptures were fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to righteousness as he was called a friend of God, imputed righteousness. He became righteous because he believed in the coming of the Messiah. We become righteous because we believe in the gospel, the good news. You know, it's interesting, as you read the book of Revelations, the Christians are portrayed in robes, white robes of righteousness. White robes. You see the Christians in heaven, white robes, worshiping, praising the Lord. But very, something very interesting we see in, in Revelations chapter 19, verse 13, we see Jesus coming back in his second coming with his robe dipped in blood. He died for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. But he imputed his perfect righteousness to our account. Praise the Lord. And in him, I, in him, the same, I could have everlasting life. And that not all, new life, new life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So I want to encourage you, get that acronym down. You know, the gospel is the most important thing that the world needs. It had an impact on Paul. Share it with people. Learn to share it. Really simple. We're sinners, undeserving, need a Savior who was tortured, who gives us access, access into heaven, atonement. In, in Him, I, Him, I can have new life. That's, that's the gospel right there. You know, get it, get it down. It's, it's powerful. How do I know? It impacted Paul's life. It impacted these, these people's lives. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter, 17, chapter 1, verse 17 through 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words, 
a wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's not about excellence of speech or wisdom of words. It's just simply knowing the gospel and sharing the gospel, simply. And it says it's the power of God leading to salvation. That's how powerful the gospel is, church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, uh, it says, Paul said, I did not come with excellence of speech, of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. So it's not about my eloquence of how I'm sharing, but Paul said, for I determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul was a scholar. He knew the law. He was, he was very knowledgeable but he said the most important thing is the gospel so to the church to the believer the most important thing you are equipped with is the gospel and i really believe it's the least used thing in the church they say only two percent of people christians actually share the gospel that's the great commission so you're equipped now you're responsible but paul said for my preaching was not with persuasive words, with human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the uh, Spirit and power. So let, church, let the gospel become part of you. Learn it over and over. I'm a sinner. I'm undeserving. You know, that's what we're trying to help you to get these down. You get these down, and it'll become part of you, and it'll be easier for you to share. So I want to encourage you. Let it take place and root in your life. Let it become part of your vocabulary. Why? Because Paul calls it powerful. The gospel is powerful. And look at, look at Stephen's message in Acts chapter 6 and 7. It was powerful. It didn't have the effect right then and there. But it was effective. Okay, so, you know, we don't have to beat people over the head over and over and over and over and share with them. Share the gospel with them once and you leave the results to God because it says God gives the increase, right? Paul said, you know, I water, I plant Paul's waters, but God gives the increase. So you just share the gospel and watch God do a work. But if we don't share the gospel, how will they hear? We're called as Christians to share the gospel. I could share it one time and it's on them. It's their personal responsibility, and that's where the Holy Spirit works in their lives. I, I remember walking down the street and somebody sharing the gospel with me, man, and I was shaking in my boots, man, but I still remember that encounter. It had an impact on me. I still remember to this day, this was in back in the 70s. You know, that guy had, a, had an impact in my life. It stayed with me, and I repented, and I came to the Lord. But carnality got the back best of me, and I backslid for 14 years. So the gospel is powerful. So I want to encourage you, let it become part of you and share it. So planting is important, but to watering. Paul here mentions watering. Watering is the, with the word of God. It provides something refreshing in, inner, in, in the inner you. Okay, You want to be... Uh, refreshing. Paul, uh, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, it, it'll cleanse you. You know, it'll cleanse you. It'll do a work of His Spirit within you. And what we put in will come out. What we put into us will come out. And we need to put more of the Word of God in our lives. 
and it'll come out. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You want to prosper, Christian? You have to be by the water. Read Psalms chapter 1. You'll prosper. You'll have good success. Why? The water of the word of God will nourish you. And then what comes in comes out. I want to encourage you. So you know you're equipped with the gospel. You're watered through the word daily in your life. And what's liberty, liberating is verse 6 and verse 7 here in the text. The results are liberating. God gives the increase. We have to let God do a work of His Spirit in my life. The gospel's spoken. The water of the Word is ministered to my heart. But God does the increase. But that only takes place as I'm yielding to God. God will only use me to share the gospels if I yield and give myself over to God to be used and to be watered. So, to, for the Christian, we need to get into the Word to grow spiritually. We need to flee carnality. We need to grow up. We need to stop crawling. No more crawling. And, and doing so will cause division to cease. It will cause us to be united. And inwardly, we will grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. And we will flourish in God's service. We're called to service. Each Christian is called to serve. Look at verse 9. Paul goes on to say here, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So get busy. Plant seeds of the gospel. He's called you. Maybe he's called you to water it. Maybe you're not where you should be. You should be a teacher by now. But he says each one will be rewarded for his own works. And I thank the Lord for, for, for Stephen because, you know, he made it possible for the, 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 the apostles to be in the word and prayer. And God used them effectively. And, you know, I want to pray that you guys would get involved, get busy, share the gospel. That's what, what you're called to do. Not only, you know, we want to live and be a good example, but living and being a, a good example glorifies the Lord but your neighbor, your friends, and your family need to hear the gospel at least once. Why? It's the power of God unto salvation. It's, it's going to save them. So God has called us to be fellow workers with him. Am I helping God? Am I being busy for God? Paul goes on in verses 10 through 11, according to the grace of of God which was given to me as a master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So in ministry, God will give you the grace for service. He will give you what you need. Number two, we need to follow Biblical instructions. Again, the apostles' doctrine. I need to be in the Word and prayer and fellowship. Why? They're important. They cause you to grow and cause you to know and, and help you in ministry. And when you're called to serve, we need to handle with care. It says, let each one take heed how he builds on it. What are you doing for the Lord? 
Is it causing the, the church to grow? I want to encourage you to pray. But it always, we need to keep the main thing, the main thing. The foundation, the gospel. The gospel is the main thing. You know, and here the church, their emphasis was their, their pastors, their leaders, or what was going on currently. The gospel, Paul says, you know, I laid the foundation. Christ is the foundation. And he said, take heed how you build on it. Okay, so each Christian should be a part of the work of the ministry here in your local church. So keep the main thing, the main thing, the gospel, the word of God, and prayer and fellowship. You see, pastors have a, a role in helping you. But the work of God in your life, the work of God, see, I could teach you, we could teach you. We could teach you, we could equip you. But the work of God, that don't depend upon me. It's not the pastor's job to do the work that's taking place in your heart. It's you yielding to God. Are you yielding? When you yield to God, God will do a supernatural work in you. You know, and again, they were, they were wanting these pastors who were great orators and they were spiritual pride. But there was a lack of the word of God taking effect in their heart. God will transform you. But remember verses 6 and 7. You know, if I give myself over to the Lord and the gospel and the water of the word, it says he will give the increase. God will do a supernatural work. The results are not up to the pastor or the ministers. The results are up to you. You're, you're listening and you yielding yourself to God and God doing a work. And that, you know, we, we see in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit working in the life of a believer will do amazing things. We see it here in Paul's life. Amazing work that he did in Stephen's life for the life of Paul. So whatever you do, whatever you do for God, put some perspiration into it. Get busy for God. But never perspiration without inspiration. We need the help and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to pray. Lord, do a work, a supernatural work in my life. And in verse 12 through 15, Paul addresses the motive of service and at the judgment seat of Christ. Because each believer, we're not going to be judged for our sins because our sins are judged on the cross. Okay, We're going to be judged at what is called the Bema seat of Christ. One day we're going to stand before Jesus and everything we will we have done for Jesus will be put into a fire. So let's read. He says here in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation, the gospel, with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, when we stand before the Lord, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone works which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, so yet as through fire. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to receive rewards for whether what we've done, good or evil. We're going to stand before God. And our motive 
for serving will go before the Lord. But something interesting that it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, about the Bema Seat of Christ. It says, you know, that we should, we're all going to stand before God and we'll receive a award, whatever good or bad. But it says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to know God. In other words, we know that judgment's coming. We need to be persuading people to get right with God. And how? Through the gospel. So notice here the difference in the building materials. We see here some superior uh, metals and precious stones and you know, when you put those in the fire, what, what happens to them? They become refined. They become better. And they last. It, it, the fire is not going to uh, consume them. But we have to examine our motive for service because when thrown in the fire, some of these things is, is how I'm serving can just add up to smoke and ash. My motive for serving... And it comes down to is is I'm giving am I giving God my best or am I taking shortcuts? That's kind of where we're at here. Am I giving God my best, my all? You know, maybe I don't have the capacity to do this or that, but I'm doing for the Lord. And what am I called to do? Am I doing the best for the Lord? Or will it just be poof, be done up in smoke and you'll be saved as yet through the fire? You know, so the day will come when our, our works will be tested of what sort they are. In verse 16 through 17, speaking to the church, you're the church. It says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Wow, yikes. God will destroy him. So the Christian is likened to the temple of God. And we see in John chapter 14, verse 17, verse 23, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it speaks about the Holy Spirit being with you, then being in you, and then coming upon you. But here it's speaking to the believer like a temple where the, the, the Spirit of the Lord dwells. But the word here, defiles, it's speaking of self-corruption. Self-corruption. The picture is of, as a believer is like a temple being self-corrupted or destroyed from within. It's not being destroyed from intruders from outward. But the word is like being corrupted by its own guardians neglecting their duties. You're neglecting the temple. And it's being destroyed because of your lack of responsibility. You know, I think of the Great Wall of China. It was built to keep invaders out from the north. It's 4,000 miles long. It's huge. They could see it from outer space. It's 4,000 miles long. It was built in uh, 200 B.C. It took a lot of years for this, them to build this wall. Uh, it was, but in A.D. 1644, it was broke through and overran. How was this magnificent wall penetrated? They bribed one of the commanders. He opened the gate and let him in. 
And, you know, that could happen to us. Carnality can creep in. God can take us out before our time. Even the most mature believer can afford to let down his guard. We can't afford to let down our guard. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Can become defiled. The Apostle John warns us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he warns us of avenues of inward defilement, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life can destroy us. They, those three can allure us away from God's word, and we leave gaps where the enemy will sneak in, and he will rob, kill, and destroy you. That's his goal. You know, why would the, the enemy test and tempt me so much this year because time is short he wants you know you strike the shepherd and the shepherd falls what else what happens people fall with him see a lapse in the, the door to sin if we start compromising as Christians it'll start developing into a habit will which will eventually overwhelm us don't permit a breach in the wall someone once said it's not the hideous things or the things that chill our heart that chokes out the seed it's often just the trifling toy that grabs our eye and steals our joy we got to be careful of our appetites our carnal appetites why because it's just like bait you know, I used to go, I used to travel for Costco and, you know, help uh, other Costcos and we used to open Costcos. And, you know, one of my pastor friends gave me a little package of lures and they're real pretty. He goes, look, Tony, I'm going to give this when you travel. Because I was traveling alone and staying in a hotel. And so he gave me some lures and he said, look, Tony, they're very pretty, but they got a sharp hook. So things might look pretty, but eventually you're going to get hooked. Be careful of those things that are feeding your carnal appetite. You see, it's a Christian's responsibility to be holy and set apart. Set apart. It doesn't mean perfect. I'm set apart for God, to be governed by God, to be spoken of God. But in verse 18, because we could have a, one of the biggest problems that we as the church can have is verse 18 addresses it, self-deception. Self-deception. We could de- he says, let no one deceive himself. That's why we need to be in the Word. In James chapter 1, verse 23, it says it's like a mirror. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, the Word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the even of the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It will get in here and in here. Spiritual surgery. Why? Everything is naked and open to the eyes of whom we must give an account, Hebrew says. You know, and then Paul goes on to say, you know, be fools, 
But what he was saying here was, you know, be teachable. Be teachable. You know, a fool can, our, our pride can stunt our growth because we think we know everything. But be teachable. Be a student. I like the acronym from Bible teacher Howard Hendricks, one of my favorite teachers. He came up with the acronym FAT, F-A-T, FAT. Christians should be faithful, available, and teachable. You know, we, we need to be fools here, I really believe, speaking of being humble and teachable. You know, I, I've talked to people, and it's like, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I know. Okay, but you're not letting me talk. I know. Okay. Be a student. We can learn from everybody. So be the Lord's student. And Paul, with the close of this, uh, this section, he was saying in verse 23, 23 you're, you're Christ and Christ God. In other words, you, you're in the right place when you're humble and teachable and in the word and not carnal behaving like mere men. You know, we should boast in our relationship with Christ. Why? Because we have a proper standing with the Father. And lastly, I'll close with this. In Luke chapter 9, verses 5 through uh, 57 through 62, at the end of the chapter, people were saying, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and you know, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus was saying, it's not going to be easy to follow me, but follow me. And then these guys were making excuses. Well, I got to do this, or I got to do that. You know, see, we, where am I spiritually? Am I growing? Am I in the word of prayer, fellowship? Am I serving? Am I giving the best to the Lord? Do I know the gospel? Am I sharing the gospel? You know, only you know, and God knows. But again, as a loving parent, God wants to spare you from disaster. He wants to equip you for use and for his glory. Would you know, don't do the things you do with inferior products. Give your best to the Lord. Give yourself to the Lord and watch God work. You know, share the gospel. And at these people uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through the end of the chapter, they were making excuses why they couldn't. But here, all you have to do is, is get, get in the word, get in prayer, fellowship regularly, yield to the Lord, let him do a supernatural work in you. God will give the increase and God will use you tremendously. Why? Because we see the results. They're not, the results are not up to you. They're his work, a work of the Spirit. So thanks be to God. You know, don't make excuses. Self-examine where you are and uh, give yourself to the, the, the Holy Spirit and let him work in your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you and I thank you for my brothers, my sisters. We thank you for your word. Father, it's true. Speak to us, Lord. May we grow to be spiritual people. Father, not carnal nor babes, Lord. May we grow in our understanding. Father, may you do a work of your spirit, Lord. May we be a part of the work here in the ministry, Father, doing all we can for your glory and for the good of your people, Lord. May there be an increase, Lord. May we be witnesses of the supernatural work you do in each one 
of your people and in their families, Lord. May we be ready until you come. Father, may we stand before you on that day. And Father, may we, the things we do, uh, produce your glory. And uh, may we, we see that day and rejoice in the rewards. So Father, we love you. We pray, Lord, that we're not deceived by self-deception nor corruption from within. But we pray, Father, that you would do a supernatural work in and through the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to encourage you.